Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 330. This program is dedicated by Gillian Cartwright in memory of Mary Lutham Thomas. We are in the week of Parshas Chayesora, the fifth Parsha of Sefer Breshis, Breshis Noyach Lechlechov Ayero Chayesora, the life of Sora. So let's begin with Exodus applied, a lesson to our lives, the most repeated statement that Rebbe would make in all his fabrengans was Teira Meloshen Heira. Teira from the word directive, a guide. So Teira is not just a history book, not the book of inspiration. It's a book that is a guide, a blueprint for our lives. Often the Rebbe would make the statement, Teira, Teira Eir, like a light. Light doesn't change reality, but it illuminates all the paths and it allows us to see which, where to go, what to use the right way. So you're in a room and it's a dark room and there are many different objects. Without the light, God forbid you can bump into something, even very important things like steps or a table that's be put to good use, but when you don't see it, you can actually get hurt by it. God forbid. So it illuminates and allows us to see everything in the proper clarity. And clarity is that blessing. So what's a that we learn from Chayesara that we can apply to our personal lives, especially in a timely fashion that's relevant to our contemporary situation? So one of the important themes that Rebbe speaks about Chayesara begins with a question. A name of a chapter, a name of any object, indicates on the personality of that chapter or on that object or person. The name, the Hebrew name of something, gives it actually its sustenance, its life, it defines its purpose. So you would assume that Chayesara, even though these names were not established by Moshe Rabbeinu, but it was established by authorities over the years. So you would think, Chayesara, you see a headline called The Life of Sarah, that the chapter is going to talk about her life. Well, you open up the first verse. No. But here, Yemei Chayesara, it says, the days of the life of Sarah was, So she lived 127 years. And then it talks about her death and the events that happened after her death, her burial. And the rest of the entire chapter is all about post-Sarah. So why would you give a name, the life of Sarah, to a chapter that talks not about her life? And as the Rebbe always points out, it's not only because it's the first letters or the first words of the, of the, of the chapter. That is incidental in a way. It's because that's what name is, that's why it's one of the first words in the chapter. And the answer to this question contains in it which one of the most important lessons in life. It teaches us what is chayis, what is life, what is the life of sorrow. So if you ask the doctor or you ask the scientist, they would give you the biological scientific definition of life, biological life. A life means that you're breathing, heart is beating, the mind is working. There are different ways we, we define life. But we know you can be biologically alive, but you could also be emotionally feel like a zombie. Same thing intellectually and spiritually. The Torah's definition of life is fulfilling the purpose of your life. Not just walking this earth. Not just breathing. That's the technical part of it. That you're fulfilling the calling of your life. And that is something that's not defined purely by, by on biological terms. When do you know if a person's really lived up to their calling? You may not even know it in their actual lifetime. You know it the day after they've passed, how they remembered, what impact they had. What do you see? Avram Avinu, Sarah's husband. First thing he does, he goes, looks for a burial plot, that act of love. You see why they have that commitment? Because that tells you that life Sarah lived, she truly lived. He then looks for a wife for Sarah, someone that is similar to his wife, Sarah. 
and Rivka, when she's probably brought and meets Yitzchak, when Yitzchak sees that that her personality was like the personality of his mother, as the chapter speaks about, he realized that's her because it was the spiritual life. And a spiritual life you really see not when a person is necessarily physically alive. You see the impact that we can spend time now, thousands of years later, and live up to the model, to to the exemplary model, and call Sarah our mother, even though she lived close to 4,000 years ago, that tells you that not only was she alive then, she's living now. So the Torah is teaching us, you want to know what a true life of Sarah is? Look at what happens afterwards, what impact, what lasting impact she leaves. Interestingly, Vayechi is similar, Vayechi Yaakov, the last chapter in this book. Also, you read Vayechi Yaakov, and it talks about the, the last days of his life. Because again, you see the true legacy, the true impact afterwards. Because the definition of life, the true definition of life, is the f- fulfillment of your mission in life, and that does not die. That actually gets stronger over the years because you see its impact on others and a generational impact. So while we're living our lives, and God bless us all, with healthy, long years, we need to remember the things that we do now. Even though instant gratification is very powerful, the Talmud already laments the fact that people will forego chaya ilam, eternal life. For what? For chaya shah, for momentary life, for momentary pleasure. To keep in mind that every step you take and every move you make and every act should be infused with your deeper mission. And when you do that, you actually you earn, in a very natural way, you earn eternity. Because what you are living for is something that's beyond just the physical, biological beginning and end of what we call physical life. It's just, this is especially relevant these days when there's so much disruption, so many unknowns, and we can easily be seduced and consumed with the news the presidential elections, all that's going on, every minute, another breaking story, controversy, battles, the pandemic and all its unknowns. How do you find peace of mind is when you don't focus on the immediate. Yes, some things are important to address, especially matters of health, but to always keep, keep our vision, our sights, on our calling, on our mission. So Chayasar teaches us, after Sarah's life, teaches us what true life is all about. That's a lesson that we all can apply, each one of us in our own way and how we teach our children, that despite what's going on around us, find that type of immortal and eternal values that you know are unwavering. And no matter what the vicissitudes, the ups and downs and the ebb and flow of life's changes, you continue to navigate because you're living true life, a life that is about your legacy, about your calling, about why you were sent to this world in the first place. With that, let us go into um, um, a few specific questions that connect to this chapter, to the entire Sefer Bereshis, this book of Bereshis. But I think this is a good opportunity to just make an announcement or two about the, this very program. We have a website called chassidusapply.com. It was actually an outgrowth because of this program and its demand and the excitement and the, the amount of people interacting and the questions. So chassidusapply.com, where you can submit any question, nothing is off limits, and we will address it in time. Sometimes immediately, sometimes because it's a backup, it may take a little while, but we will address your questions. So you go to chassidusapply.com. There you can also find previous episodes, 329, and also all the essays written over the last six years. Now we also have a creative track. I'll be reviewing that at the end of this program. That where you can read essays of people from all walks of life applying chassidus to contemporary life issues and challenges. You also have other resources there, chassidic resources. I give a class, a daily class in Ayin Bays. You're welcome to join. It's a daily not 9.30 a.m. every morning, Eastern Time, on Zoom. All the information can be found there at chassidusupply.com. <clears throat> As such, I will make reference to previous episodes where I did speak about Chayasara, 
And those are 88, episode 88, 138, 187, 233, 283. You can also download every program. There's a podcast, MP3, so you can listen on the go. And uh, as well as they're time-stamped, so you can actually go to the actual topic you're looking for, so you don't need to listen to the entire hour or hour and ten minutes. Okay. With that question, are the stories in Bereshis as important as the mitzvahs discussed in other Chumashim? So he's referring to the book of Bereshis, which is the first book of Genesis. I believe that there are only three out of the 613 mitzvahs in the entire book of Genesis, of Bereshis. The rest are in the other four books. The rest of Bereshis is mostly stories besides these three mitzvahs. I was told that there are many lessons in the stories, but they often seem very mundane, like the story with Lot and his daughters. Are the stories really as important as the mitzvahs? Okay, good question, fundamental question. So yes, three, the three are pruravu, to have children. The second is the mitzvah of uh, bris milah, which was given to Avram. And the third is gidanosha, the sciatic nerve, that part of the the body that one should not eat because of the story with Yaakov and the, and the wrestling with the angel. Okay. So actually, if you look at the first Rashi in Chumash, in a way he alludes to this question. He says, why did the Torah begin with Bereshis? Which is really a narrative, the narrative of creation and the rest of the narratives. Why didn't it begin with Achidosh Azalachem, which is technically the first mitzvah given to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses in Egypt, the blessing on the new moon. And, he's, and he answers, because God wanted to tell his nation and tell the world about his creation, that I am the creator of the world, in case anybody would come and say that the Jewish people stole the land of Israel. So God is saying, I created the world, and first I, for, then I gave a part of the world, which is the part of Israel to the Jewish people. So in case anyone ever says you're a thief, called Parashis Bara You begin with that. Now, what does that mean exactly? Yes, it's, it's the answer, the question is answered, but we derive from this something very powerful. That there is a certain fundamental teachings that come from understanding the narrative of creation and the events that happen throughout this book of Parashis that in a way precede the mitzvahs themselves. Because the kavona, the purpose of creation, the purpose of the mitzvahs was to refine and transform this world. So in a sense, there's two orders. There's the order of mitzvahs, then it begins, but there's an order before that. Before that was given was the creation of the world to set the stage where these mitzvahs would be done so now we can come and transform the world with these Torah mitzvahs, which, interesting, were given 26 generations after the creation. So the same question can be asked. Is the purpose of creation is Torah mitzvahs? So why wasn't it given immediately? And the answer is because first you need to prepare the ground. Think of it like the education of a child before they become bar on bat mitzvah, before they become formally obligated. So it's a training ground. The Mitla Rebbe takes it even further in Teres Chaim. The Mitla Rebbe, second Chabad Rebbe, and explains that Sefer Bereshis in general is different than the other four. Besides that, it's mostly narrative and story and that they don't have as many laws and mitzvahs as in the later ones. Also, it covers almost 2,000 years and it's primarily the story of Odom Arishan, the 10 generations later Noyach, 10 generations Avram, and from Avram to Moshe Rabbeinu. And he explains, because Sefer Bereshis, he calls it Sefer Yashar, the Gemara calls it, because it talks about the story of the Yesharim, the straight ones, which is the Ovis and the Mois, our patriarchs. Because Bereshis, he literally calls it the blueprint. In Bereshis, we learn that all the personalities are laying the ground for whatever would happen afterwards. So the real narrative begins of the Jewish people, really, in Egypt, and their exodus from Egypt to Matan Torah. But you need to have resources. And the resources are the story of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Chesed, Gvura, Teferis. So in a way, Bereshis is all the preparatory resources and tools necessary that lays the foundation and would give the power and strength to the fulfillment that would re- of the purpose of creation that even though it begins from the beginning of creation, but it's real, active, and formal 
stage where it begins is when they leave Egypt and they go to Sinai and then they build the temple, the Mishkan. And from there on, it's only 40 years are covered from Exodus of Egypt till the end of Chumash, the fifth, the fifth book ends where? 40 years, the 40 years when they left Egypt to the day that they arrived to the east bank of the river Jordan. Not the day, exactly that day, but that period. And then Moshe Rabbeinu, the last fifth book talks about, reviews everything that happened. And then Moshe Rabbeinu, Zion Cheshvan passes, Zion Oder, I should say, the seventh of Oder, that's when his istalkus is, and with that the book ends, the Chumash ends. So Bereshis is a very unique book, and, and I'm glad you asked this question. But first we have to enter the environment and, the, and get the resources necessary, the blueprint, and then we implement it, which is the story of the mitzvahs that come afterwards. Okay. Interesting siche in B'Shlach, Tov Shem Mamzayin. Sefer HaSiche is Tov Shem Mamzayin, an edited siche. The Rebbe speaks about this as well, and talks about... Um, uh, these two so-called approaches where the Torah begins with the mitzvahs or it begins with creation and existence. So that's a, a source that you can look and follow up. Okay. The next question. Why is there limited, why is there limited discussion of the Imois in the Torah? We are told that the Imois, meaning the matriarchs, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are told that the Imois were such great people However, when reading the Torah, there's very little about them, and even less about their good deeds. If one would read the Torah without commentary, they wouldn't really think much of the Imois, the, the matriarchs, because the Torah doesn't say much about their remarkableness. Why is that? Um, first of all, we may not all agree on that fact. Uh, you, have, you have plenty. I mean, it's, everything is relative, but to say we know nothing about Sarah or Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, you have stories, you have behavior. I'm talking about even without commentaries and without Torah Shabbat Peh. As a matter of fact, you can ask the question about the patriarchs as well. Avram Avinu, who lived 175 years, we only have Lechel Chavayera and Chayesar, three chapters about him. Yitzchak, who lived 180 years, so we have, let's say, we'll start with Vayera, Chayesara, well, not Vayera, um, yeah, okay, Chayesara, Vayera, Chayesara, Teldes, four chapters. And Yaakov, who lived 147 years, we have seven chapters. So it seems disproportionate, especially based on their age. The story of Avram Avinu begins when he's age 75. That's when Lech Lecha begins. We only have one or two verses that talk about his birth before that. So the answer to all of these questions is the Torah, as I mentioned at the outset, is Meloshen Heira. The Torah is not coming to give us the history of our forefathers and our foremothers, of the patriarchs and matriarchs. It has historical elements to it. It has stories and narratives. The Torah came to give us a blueprint for life. The Torah precedes existence. It's a blueprint for life. And whatever we need to know for that blueprint is written in the Torah, and that which needs further explanation is explained and elucidated in the oral Torah, Torah Shabal Peh. So whatever we need to know about Avram primarily begins at age 75. In Medrash you'll find events that happened before that. It's also relevant. But the primary elements of the blueprint, which Avram being as chesed, Yitzchak as gvura, Yaakov as teferis, and the same thing with the imois, each one, their role, is we, we are told exactly what we need to know. And of course when you go to the oral Torah, the Torah Shabbat Peh, you get many more details. So I don't know if you can measure this exactly, exactly by verse. The question you may ask is, so why is there more verses about Avram Avinu, let's say, than Sarah? This has nothing to do with one being better or more important than the other. It's simply because, again, each one has their role. Perhaps you could also say, because Kfudah Basmelech Pnima, a woman is more tsunua, like the story actually that we just read, how the angels come and Sarah was in her tent, and they primarily interact with Avram Avinu, is, is part of her personality. Part, that alone is a lesson. Not everything has to be so open and public. A male, is more of the go-getter. That doesn't mean a woman is not a go-getter, but it's in a different way, in a more subtle way. So whatever you find will be a lesson. 
and to in any way diminish their role, absolutely not. These are the mothers. These are the, the ancestors, the foundations of the Jewish people. And when you look at each story that is told, it's filled with Mahzik HaMeruba, even if it's short, it's filled with so much. Actually, Rashi and Chassidus talks about why which means you find more elaboration sometimes about the servant of Avram, Eliezer, Evid Avram, and when Thomas talks about the, 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 the Torah, you only find half a verse. So the Torah addresses that, somewhat like I said earlier about the creation, because there's something about the transformation of Tachtenim, that has a lot of value. So you may have more verses about that than you may have sometimes of a mitzvah or a, or a, or a posuk that seems to be so vital and so important. But the Torah doesn't work by kamos. It's not about numbers. It's not about how many verses or how many chapters. It's about the quality that it's trying to express in offering us that blueprint for life. From there, the rest of this has to be obviously elaborated upon case by case of all the details. Uh, <clears throat> Another question regarding these issues, which is, why do we find more discussion in Torah about the wicked than about the good? There are relatively many psukim, verses, discussing many random characters in the Torah, but very little about important people. For example, there's a lot more about Hagar and Yishmael than Shem or Aver. More about Lot than Avram's other children, besides Yitzchak and Yishmael. This seems very confusing. Why do seemingly trivial, trivial individuals receive so much coverage? But many holy people often hardly get a mention. If I had the opportunity to be mentioned in the Torah, even if I had to be Dustin and Aviram, wouldn't it be worth it? Wouldn't, be better, wouldn't it be better to be mentioned rather than being somebody holy, unnamed, some holy and unnamed person in the desert? It seems a bit unfair. Okay. Ostensibly, your question makes sense. But if we go back to the principles which I've been addressing, and all these questions really coming from different directions, it all leads us to the same point. This isn't about the individual. This isn't like the Torah. Oh, the Torah likes to talk about wicked people. There's a lesson to be learned there, and when the lesson is vital, it's going to be mentioned. If in any way you see a little more written about, let's say, Lot than about Avram or other people, then that's, part of also, that's also part of the lesson. To cite yet another story, the end of Parsha Vayishlach, there's the whole discussion of all the, pedig- the, the, pedig- the, 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 the descendants of Esau and who ruled where and what and so on. And then Rashi refers to the beginning of Vayeshev. Why do we need to know all these details? So he gives the answer there because it's how he explains it there. But when you look, Siddhis elaborates. As a matter of fact, those verses in, in, uh, in End of Ayishlach is really the structure of the world of Toyo. Vayimlach Vayomos. The seven, eight different kings who ruled and died is the Shvirus HaKelim. They ruled. Reimamus, a lot of energy. But then the container shattered. So when you look at the whole story, because part of the Torah, as I said, is not just about the actual mitzvah or the actual tzaddik. It's about transforming the world with godliness. And the world includes corruption and includes the darkness that comes from the tzimtzum and the different characters who somewhat represent that aspect of it. And they too have actually sources in high levels of Kedusha, like Lovan, for example. Down below, Lovan is a Russian. Above, Chesidus, based on Kabbalah and the Rizal, says Lovan comes from Levin Elyon, the supernal whiteness, a very high level in Keser. So all this is telling you that the Torah is a lot more than meets the eye. Meaning the eye, you could say, yeah, this seems, why is he saying this? But then when you start learning and understanding, everything has a deeper lesson. And everything in Torah, as the Rambam says, even Aches and Leighton Timna, is as powerful as Shema Yisrael Hashem Elikeinu Hashem Echad because it's all part of God's divine blueprint. Each verse has its purpose. Here is not the place. This is what I do week after week. We take different verses, different ideas, and demonstrate how it's part of that divine blueprint. But don't think of it as about focus on a negative or on a positive. 
Look, there are two chapters in the Torah named after people who were not Kirach, Bolok. The Rebbe explains how could you name a Pasha like that? And explains how that too is part of the lesson, part of the transformation. So that is the short answer to this question. Okay. So that covers, to some extent, the Pasha matters. There are more questions that came in, but I need to... Um, Somewhat, uh, somewhat uh, scatter them, so I'll discuss some more next week. So if you had a question about these parshas and I wasn't covered, um, I will try to do that in the following program. Okay. So, a little hefsik, And we move now to, of course, the latest turbulence, unknowns, disruptions. Just when we thought that we had enough uncertainties in the, this year, 2020, uh, beginning with the pandemic and the unknowns it has unleashed. We still have no idea when it's going to end. Will there be a vaccine? How it's going to impact us and the world around us? <clears throat> and then other upheavals that have been going on in the last months, of course. It's election year, presidential election year in USA. So though this program is not about politics and it's not about uh, current events, but it's about chassidus applied, Torah applied, which includes applying it, obviously, to events that are happening around us, especially ones that are impacting so many of us. So here we have an election. And, um, of course, consistent, even though we've never expected it, we did not know the results immediately, which only throws things into more mayhem, and all the confusions and that continue to affect us all. So just when we thought, okay, maybe here we'll get some clarity. No, we don't have exact clarity. We believe and we know there will be clarity, obviously. But I'm looking at more from the perspective, what's going on? All these, yet another, why can't we already have some type of predictability, some consistency? So I have no doubt that uh, God has a deeper plan and perhaps... As I discussed in another class that I give, I give a Wednesday night class. So this past Wednesday, I gave a class called Now What? And discussed about the aspect of disruption. The whole disruption is very unsettling and unnerving. But in the language of Chassidus, yesh, ayin, yesh. Whenever you want to reach a new paradigm, a new world order, from one state of being to another, you go through a type of metamorphosis. Similar to the caterpillar going through the chrysalis, the cocoon, to become a butterfly. Similar to a chick after breaking the, cracking the egg and a chick emerges. That every new revelation, every epiphany, anything worth talking about is always going to have some form of vacuum or void in between. When you know that, it doesn't take away from the disruption, but it puts it into context. So I think it's important, to talk about chassidus applied, to keep in mind that we are, what gives us strength, unwavering strength, is when we're tied above, we don't fall below, is our connection to God, is our connection to our purpose, is our connection, as I said before, with chayasaru, to our calling. And then the events in the world, we have to fit in. How does that, how does that support and help us harness and fulfill our calling. We say at the end of Pirkei Yavis, everything God created in the world, He created nothing else but for His honor. To bring godliness into the world. So when we see these events, that's the first thing that comes to mind. You look says, okay, yes, I and yes. This isn't the beginning of the disruption. You can say the whole internet has disrupted commerce, the world in many ways. Disruption doesn't always mean destruction. And yes, as we are the beginnings and early stages, the second end of the second decade of the 21st century, when the Hebrew year Tov Shimpei, entering Tov Shimpei Aleph, maybe that's the wake-up call. Get us out of our comfort zones in order for us to become greater people. And that includes all the issues going on. The main thing is we should not allow ourselves to become defined and shaped by these events. They should be defined and shaped by us. As I said, by So then you see the events and you say, ah, oh, how do I use this to make a Kiddush Hashem? 
Ah, how do I use this to bring a little godliness and goodness and kindness into this world? How do I use this to bring Mashiach? That's how we should be thinking, proactively. Just look at every iota of the Rebbe's life and teachings and directives and campaigns, you name it. It was always that way. What do we look at the world and not say, oh, how are we going to respond? How is this part of the world or this event in, the, in history or this event in this period in time or the people we meet, how are they going to manifest the fulfilling of God's kavon in this world? To make a home for the divine in this material world. How to spread the wellsprings to the outskirts, to the farthest outskirts that we can reach. So that's how we have to be reacting to everything, including whoever the president may be. We are not defined, when I say we, human beings in general, especially the Jewish people, we shouldn't be and not defined by whoever the leader. We have had leaders in history that were not exactly uh, fine people. We're not, we're tyrants. We're Hitlers, the Machshamay, pharaohs. You name it. And we suffered greatly at their hands, but they were the ones there. And we came out stronger in the process. I'm not going to compare that to today. We, as humans, and Jews especially, we live in freedom. So to start making a doomsday scenario, whoever, by who, because someone won an election, or someone lost an election, no. We have survived more than that, and more we've thrived. And everything can be turned toward the positive. When you have that attitude, then events don't shake you quite that way, quite the same way. We should be living from the inside out. So that's an overall statement. And then whoever we can influence and inspire to live up to God's mandate for this country and for the entire world, that's what we need to do. And never think that someone can control your ability to fulfill your purpose. As the Friedrich Rebbe, citing his father, the Rebbe Rashab, said when he went out of prison, the Friedrich Rebbe, Nishmitun Zerotzen, not without desire did we go into Golis, and not without desire will we go out, but that will be Hashem's choice. But one thing we need to know, the Neshama never went to Golis. No one can control your Neshama. They can control your body. <clears throat> but not your Neshama, and not your destiny, not your divine destiny. And in the harshest of times, Jews knew that, and they ultimately prevailed. Now we're not having such harsh decrees. We don't have decrees at all. So no, we can't complain. You can send your children to any school you like to. You can educate them as spiritual and Jewish as you wish. We have to remember that. And nobody can change that. On the contrary, like the Rebbe calls this country, a shal chesed, medina shal chesed. A chesed of kindness, general kindness. And we, the Jewish people, have benefited greatly from it. So that's the overall comment I would like to say about that. Obviously, whatever we can do to influence policy that lives up to the standards or tailored what God wants of us, and making our lives more comfortable, making our lives easier as citizens of this country, of course we have to use our influence. But we have to keep in mind the bigger picture as well. And as I always point out, what is in the hearts of kings and ministers is in the hands of God, in the hand of God. Which is interesting, someone pointed out to me, does that mean that elections are also determined by God? It doesn't say that. It says that what the heart of the kings and the leaders are in the hand of God. In other words, what they will do. Not necessarily the actual election. But you could say there is Ashgoch is that God does run the show. So though people vote, yet God has some say in the matter. Sometimes we understand. Sometimes it's a mysterious, invisible hand and we understand in time. But that's a good segue to the next question, and that is praying for leaders in power. Should we pray for leaders in power? I heard that the Friedrich Rebbe wrote a tefillah for President Roosevelt, who was, of course, uh, during World War II. Roosevelt did, good, did do good things, but he also did some very bad things. He didn't allow many Jews to enter the U.S. before the Holocaust. He refused to bomb the trains to the camps, and even many of his social programs bordered on tyranny. 
according to many. Should we really daven for those in power, even though they do many things that are wrong? This, of course, includes the new president, the previous presidents, the future presidents. If yes, why? What about Stalin or Castro or Chavez and Maduro and Ahmadinejad? If not, what is the criteria about who we daven for? Okay, very good question. So there's a mission in Pirkei You shall pray for the Shlema, for the peace and welfare of the kingship. And there's no conditions there. As a matter of fact, there are prayers that were even said for very cruel and wicked anti-Semitic czars in Russia. They're printed in some of the Svarim. And um, there are harlochas about this. Because you have to remember, why B'Shleim B'Shal Malchus says the mission, it continues. Were not for the fear of the king, or in the case of a leader of the rule, laws of the land, one person would swallow up another. So in other words, even if it's a cruel king, the fact of the matter, there is some type of uh, fear, some type of uh, deterrent, and therefore you have to misbalabushlemishalmachus. There's obviously a lot more to it. It says that, as I said, that whoever a king or leader may be has a certain divine um, blessing. That's why there's a barbichus hamelech, to make a bracha on a, on when you see a king. There was a whole discussion when, if you saw President Trump, the truth is with every president, do you make a blessing or not? Many said yes. And again, it's not to do nothing to do with your opinion about the king. It's not like if it's a good king, you make a blessing. If it's not a bad king, that itself is talked about in Allah, which blessing you make. So there's something about a leader that has that gives that individual in the divine eye some type of authority and therefore some type of um, divine power. Now, if he lives up to it and chooses correctly and he's a benevolent leader and follows what God wants and he's humble, then of course... He's living up to the expectations. But even if not, there's still an element of praying because at the end of the day, he controls the destiny of your life or whoever lives in that empire or country and the lives of others. And the prayer could also include that maybe Yarov of Ruch Memorim, that he should have a clarity and blessed to see and do things in a more godly and a more divine way. Doesn't always work out that way. Obviously, this is very hard to swallow when you talk about a person like you, Hitler. What, do we have to pray for Hitler? You know, I, it's a good question, because there you can say the total destructive force who went to literally kill every Jew, and yet he was the leader of the country, as, as, as obscene as that sounds. So the question is not so much we're not praying for him to be him. We're praying that he should not be him, that he should live up to what he has to be. And there you could argue praying for the, for the welfare of, of Nazi Germany was not for the welfare of anybody. They ate, ended up eating everybody alive, swallowing everyone. So it wasn't that they were upholding law and order. They destroyed law and order, especially to those that they considered their enemies. So I assume that certain exceptions in this regard, but overall, especially in a country like ours, which is a benevolent country, and the laws of the land have been kind to the Jewish people, and we have recourse on an institutional level, there's no question that there is an element of which is said even about empires and kings and leaders that were not at all kind to the Jewish people. Okay. So where are we now? Let's see. Okay, um, let us go to this question next about good versus for the good. Is everything that God does immediately good? Or it may cause a greater good for the world, meaning it's not good right now, but it will result in something good in the future. So, of course, this touches upon. the topic of Gamzul Teva, 
Okoma, the Ovid Rachmona, the Ovid Kutchebrich, the Tiv Ovid. The Rebbe explains the different levels of goodness. We say, Gamzul Teva, this too is for the good. Everything God does, He does for the good. That's either a good that's hidden or it will lead to a good. So there are different levels, but there's no question that evil does not come from above, and everything is meant for the good. The fact that we may not see it, or for right now, it may not be that way. So you can learn it several ways. You could say it's a stage that needs to go through, like I mentioned about disruption. Disruption can cause pain. Disruption could also cause death, as we've seen. And yet, if you look at the big picture, it's a journey toward a greater good. The Jews were in Egypt. It was not exactly pleasant. Moshe Rabbeinu said, Why are you doing evil to these people? And yet, like like a melting pot, melt, a, 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 a melting, uh, that, that melted, the, that, that, that hardened them to the point that they became a nation receiving the Torah. So you have to look at everything in the context of a bigger picture. Sometimes the good is right there, but you don't see it yet. So it could be a stage toward good, or it could be actually hidden good, and sometimes even a greater hidden good, that's why it's hidden, because it's so powerful. Chesodim nestorim. As Chesidus explains, So, both possibilities are there. In truth, even if it's a stage toward, at the end of the day, because it led to it, so like the Rebbe explains with Yerida Tzayda Chaliyah, then the Yerida, the descent itself, becomes part of the Aliyah. It's like when you raise a building with a Z. And then, you demolish a building in order to build another building. So the demolishing is demolishing, but then if someone understands what's happening, no, it's part of the next building is to demolish. In order to build something greater. That's the brief answer. And someone wrote as well, about, is God's definition of good the same as our definition? We are told that God is good, but we're also told that we cannot understand God. Is it possible that our definition of good is different for God? And that would explain why bad things happen to good people, because we don't really know what good and bad is as far as God is concerned. That is correct. And actually discussed very directly this question. It sounds very similar to this question. Maybe it was the same questioner. Episode 311. No need for me to go over it. Just go to 3.11. And as I said, at chassidusapply.com and you'll find, you'll find the, the elaborate answer on that. I also refer you to episodes 201 and 202, 205 and 238. This is a pretty um, relevant topic that keeps popping up again and again in different circumstances. Okay. Here's an interesting new question about brain chip technology. Would a brain chip be acceptable according to Teir? You have mentioned that according to the Rebbe, technology by itself is neutral, and it depends on how humanity uses it. It seems to me that it is likely that the technological revolution of the computer chip will eventually end up being, end up with people using computer computer chip brain implants. What would be a moral an immoral use of such a technology. It seems to me that this technology is going to be coming down the pike sooner than later. Is it moral, for example, for someone to have a personal computer embedded in their brain so that they can project their desktop, etc., out from their own eyes onto their reality before them? My concern is that it may not only be a defilement of the human body, but that eventually people will be made to be influenced by undetectable biased algorithms from within their own minds from a very early age, perhaps eventually even at birth. Society is already under mass hypnosis, it seems, and this would be taking it to another level. Also, if these chips were also used to enhance mental performance or help bolster a person's ability to, chal- to challenge, to deal with challenge, Most of a person built to challenge their more ba- more base to challenge their more base drives, would that is, in a sense be taking away one's God's gift to humanity, which are the un- which are the unsavory yet necessary predispositions 
that allow us to transcend them and bring our potential into fruition. I'm just curious what your perspective is. The reason why I ask is because it seems like augmented reality glasses are going to become very popular like the iPhone, and already companies like Facebook and I think Elon Musk are talking about computer brain interfaces. And that, in relationship to the Google D-Wave NASA collaboration and the fact the majority of the information people are relieving comes from probably like five different search social media services that clearly have a bias in terms of their belief systems and have no problem building algorithms accordingly. Hopefully I'm not coming across as paranoid, but just genuinely curious as to whether it is acceptable by the Torah to have a personal computer in your brain. I hope all is well. Okay. Well, it's an interesting question on many levels. It's not just about chips, brain chip. It's about all technology. Yes, it's a whole different level when it's embedded and really completely <laughs> invades your inner being. But the question really is, how much should we expose ourselves to technology? So you really alluded to the answer right at the outset, citing previous programs that where I discussed this, going back to that uh, Mishnah. Everything God created in the world was created not by no other reason but to bring honor to God. God did not create anything for waste. There's a powerful opening paragraph, opening chapter in the Sikh of Mishpatim Tovshin Mem Dalad, printed in the Hesophis of Chelik Chavov, volume 26 in Lukute Sikhis. The Rebbe wrote it with his own handwriting, talking about radio, but all technology. That to say that this was created by a negative force, God forbid, it's created by God. And its purpose is to be used to spread godliness and Torah and mitzvahs. Like Zohov, gold was created, the, Mishnah, the Medr says, only because of the Mishkan. But in order for there to be pchira, free will, as you all mentioned, or allude to, that's why you can create, use gold to build a golden calf, etc. And the, and the Gemara already says the answer who asked, to the one who asked the question, the, the, the min, the, who asked the question, the non-believer who asked the question, if God doesn't want idolatry, meaning sun and moon worshippers, why didn't he destroy the sun and the moon? And the answer is, because of the fools, God's going to destroy his world. Ask the Teisvis Yontif commentary on that mission. It's a mission. So why is not the follow-up question? Why doesn't he destroy the fools? And the answer is because of Bechira. We are given free will. So there you have the answer. Technology is only a tool. It's an instrument. A bicycle, a hammer, a screwdriver, a nail, pliers, an automobile. They're all neutral. They're just instruments. They can be used for excellent things, to build, to spread, to disseminate. They can be used destructively. The Rebbe's story, which I cite in Toward a Meaningful Life on technology, Science and Technology chapter. A kitchen knife, is it good or bad? Depends on how you use it. If you use it to hurt someone, it's bad. It's being used for a bad purpose. If you use it to cut challah or food or in a healthy way, something constructive, it's being used for the good. So I would say the same thing with all everything. Whether a brain chip should be implanted, you already have the concept a bit. There, there are ear, ear implants to help people with hearing. They have been worked on and experimented for eyes for those that cannot see. Is it not permitted? Rabbis and people who know technology, many say it's fine if it helps the situation. To put something in the brain that becomes a processor for you and changes reality and perhaps takes away your will and so on, that may be an intrusion that's unacceptable. When I say may, why am I not saying definitely? Because I don't want to create a final ruling without knowing the circumstances. It depends what it is. What happens if they develop a brain chip that can release chemicals in the brain that allows a person who's bipolar to be more balanced in their lives? So I have no doubt that can be discussed. And I'm not getting now into the issues of Shabbos and others. I'm talking about the pure thing. If it's used to create some Superman, like the science fiction scenarios, where people are tampering with the very genetic the nature of human beings, then it goes into genetic engineering, it may be crossing a line that we shouldn't be crossing. So I think it's case by case, recognizing it's all neutral, 
Now, if, how are we guided? We're guided by a Torah. We're guided by what God wants of us. If we're guided by that, and that creates the moral standards of how any type of technology is used, then you're on safe ground. If you become your own God, and you decide, for whatever reason, financial reasons, or for power and influence, or for honor, do you want to make a name for yourself? Yeah, then, then it's a question. The same is with everything. I remember when the beginning, if you remember, of, of um, uh, IVF, in vitro fertilization. It was very controversial. The Rebbe had commented on it. I'm not going to go into it here. But the same things with every issue that is to modern technology and science and medicine is opening up new opportunities for, for dealing with fertility or dealing with other matters. It has to be looked at very closely with only one intention in mind. Is this part of enhancing that we would say this is part of what God would want us to do? Or not? And that's how the Rebbe explained radio and television. Of course on radio and television there's plenty of inappropriate things and can create a lot of damage. But the very force in nature, as the Rebbe says, a koyach adir, a powerful force in nature that God implanted. Electricity is there from the beginning of time. They just discovered it thousands of years later. So electricity, can it be used for something destructive? Of course it can. It could also hurt people. But it could be harnessed for unbelievable achievement. And when you do that, you're turning the world into like, the, again, the, the non-believer who asked Rabbi Akiva, if God wants children to be circumcised, boys to be circumcised, why didn't he create them circumcised? So Rabbi Akiva said, if God wanted us to have bread, why didn't he give us bread? Instead, we have to discover grain that needs to be planted and, and sowed in a field, and you have to cultivate and nurture it and water it. And then it finally you harvest it, and you th- cut it and thresh it, and then you to remove the, the flour from it, mix it with water, and bake it, and then you have a chali, you have bread. Because we are shut of Baruch we're partners. But one tremendous condition, that we're partners with God, we're not on our own. It has to be aligned with God's purpose and God's intentions. And then, that's exactly how the world was created. So much technologies, even th- foods that we've discovered, from coffee to tea and so on all produced from the resources God embedded in existence, but we are tapping into it to make life better in order to serve God better, to fulfill our calling. And the same rules have to be applied to any given situation with a brain chip. Obviously, when it's more intrusive, there are many other factors to include, and especially if you're talking about, yes, you're becoming a walking computer and people uh, streaming, streaming into your consciousness, what we now get all the time on our smartphones and our computers, yeah, that's that. I would say even right now we're allowing it into our brain. And we need to limit that exposure. You don't need to wait for a brain chip. Right now, people are unfortunately living vicariously and being completely influenced by what is being told to them and what others' agendas and so on. Not for the good. Okay. Okay, so now let us go. I'll go to one more question. Wealthy people. Why did God create rich people? So there's a powerful few letters and sikhs from the Rebbe citing a Talmud that says, Rebbe Yehoi Machabed, Rebbe Machabed Ashirim. Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, one of the greatest Talmudic sages who would honor the wealthy. As soon as you hear that, one second, what does that mean? I mean, that's like, oh, that's like uh, something we're repulsed by. A man like that, if that's a male, people who, well, you know, they run after money, money, money talks to them. They think it's power, influence. They, you know. But a person like Rebbe, Mechabed Ashirim, as if like, and people are not wealthy, are they not creating the divine image? Are they less important? It's as so many people say, they see rabbis, they see others who, when it comes to a wealthy person, they suddenly change their demeanor and attitude. So the Rebbe's answer is very simple but profound. Go back to the same principle we've been talking. Wealth is a blessing. It's a blessing. It's a blessing of God. Why does God give some people more wealth than others then? So, so Dovid HaMelech, King David, asked that question to Hashem. Why do you create class distinctions between the poor and the wealthy? 
You have all the gold and silver. Or silver and gold. So you, can have, you could have distributed equally to everyone. Make everyone wealthy. And God answers, says the Medish, Chesed ve'emes If I would have made everyone equal, who then would do chesed in this world? So Chesedus makes a whole thing about this. That means the truth is everybody should have gotten equally. But Hashem wanted chesed, so He blessed some individuals recognizing and giving them a vote of confidence that they would be wise enough to understand it's not for them, it's for to do chesed in this world. So in a sense, they're holding that money as a pakotin. The fact that many people don't feel that way, that's their own pachira. They're making a mistake. So with that principle in mind, Rebbe saw an usher, he saw a man that God, vote, vote, God blessed him with opportunity to do a lot of chesed in this world. A lot of opportunity, a lot of, to, to, to develop and help many, to build things. So he honored the divine blessing that is through this usher. So he honored the usher because this, you're a person God chose for this reason. Now, if the usher would not behave in that way, then he's not living up to his calling. That was the, that's the point. It's a tremendous lesson. Now, obviously, he honored other people for other qualities, because money is one way. There are people who are blessed with wisdom. There are people who are blessed with a certain, uh, a, a, a certain gentleness and kindness to others. So for the same reason, everybody has qualities that Hashem blessed them with. And you're not honoring them and their egos. You're honoring the blessing that God gave them to do something good with their skills and talents and, op- and opportunities. That's the answer to this question. Okay. Um, there was some follow-up with online addiction. I can tell you, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not happy to report this, but on the other hand, I'm very gratified. I've received literally over 50 to 70 phone calls over the last few weeks about this topic, how relevant it is. Many anonymous sharing with me, some telling me about if there's anyone that needs help, please give them my number. So if anybody is interested in talking to someone anonymously, I'm happy to make the connection. Just send me a, uh, in the forum on chassidahsupply.com, uh, send me some contact info. You can make up a fake email. Not a fake, I can make up an anonymous email, I should say. Or give me your number, or I'm happy to connect anyone. But I was very gratified because I see that um, it's a real challenge, but we can do something about it. So I, I would just, uh, just throw in a, a follow-up on this topic. Um, let's read something from... I'll just read one or two comments that came in here. Uh, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I've been listening to your classes for some time now and immensely enjoy them. My question has been touched upon before, but I have, the question, I have a question I'm sure others do as well. I don't drink or smoke or have a substance abuse problem. I do have a long-standing problem of seeing not sneeze things online. You mentioned in a prior episode of a husband not connecting with his wife emotionally due to his being emotionally plugged into other things other than his wife. I'm paraphrasing. I've spoken to a rabbi and he directed me to guard your eyes, which is a fantastic resource. One problem I have, however, is the lack of Hasidic approach. Having learned Hasidic, it doesn't click with me 100%. My question is, is there a resource for dealing with such a problem with a more Hasidic approach? As well as if you have a suggestion for a therapist that can deal with from patients, more specifically a bocher who went through the system. Or rather, does it need to be a from therapist? I am of the age of Shaduchim and asking for help is one of the hardest things for me to do regardless of how many people have the problem. I don't know where else to ask for a from therapist without letting the problem be known to other people. I cannot bring myself to write a resume and begin the shidduch process without first dealing with this problem. I know marriage will not solve it. And I push off getting a job or college due to not wanting to do so before I am married. Thank you for all you do, and any answers you provide are appreciated. Please email me, if possible, a resource or source for a from therapist. So... This, I answered this, I responded to a similar question last week. I th- thank you for writing, and I'd be happy to make any connections. I, there are names I can give you. Um, so if you're, not, if you're listening to this, please either email me or text me again, and I will make that connection. And uh, always remember, every challenge can be dealt with. If you put your mind to it, you get the right help and support. God does not give us challenges we cannot deal with. 
no matter how difficult and insurmountable it may seem. Okay. There was another question that came in, but I think I'll have to leave that because of the time limitations. Um, yeah. As far as the Chassidish approach, I've been talking about that. I want to refer all of you to Sicha, Yutes Kislev, Chof Aleph Kislev, I should say, Tofresh Ayin Gimel, and Teirish Shalom. If any of you are interested, I'll be happy to send you a link to two talks I gave based on that sicha, where the, the, the Rebbe Rashab talks about, in very edel and a very refined way, transforming negative urges into something, and dafka through chassidus, because chassidus has the power to rewire that part of our, doesn't say dopamine, but that part of our brain, where we have so much, uh, where the taiva, where the temptation lies. I'm not saying that's going to solve it all, but if you're talking about a chassidusha approach, that's a chassidusha approach. And I'm working on some ideas how to integrate the chassidusha approach, and there are good therapists who actually do that as well. Because a chassidusha approach includes not just looking at yourself negatively, but ultimately trying to access and trigger and generate something from the deepest parts of the neshama that help counter the powerful forces of these type of addictions. Okay, so we'll be talking more about this. Let me conclude now with the Chassidus question and then the essays, and we will conclude this program. Yeah. So the Chassidus question is the significance of the Ovis and mentioning them in prayer. Why do we mention the Ovis? We mention the Ovis every day at least three times at the beginning of Shemir Nasri. Can you explain according to Chassidus or otherwise what is their significance and why is it so important to mention them every single day, three times, and how can, it can be meaningful every time we say it? There has to be something more than what meets the eye if we're going to say it tens of thousands of times in our lifetime. Very good question. So I take you back to the beginning of this program, which was the discussion of the people and the personalities and events in Teda. They are not just people. They are physical people that lived. But above all, they are spiritual archetypes. Avram embodies chesed. The Sefer HaBoyer writes that chesed of Atzilus told Hashem when Avram was roaming the earth. When you have Avram on earth, why do you need me? I have no purpose. So the embodiment and the personification of kindness and love is Avram. The personification and embodiment of Gvura, which is discipline, which is Yiris Hashem, Avram is Ave, Chesed, is Yitzchok. And the embodiment and personification of Teferes, compassion, empathy, balance, harmony, Emes, Sholem, is Yaakov. The same is with everyone in the Torah. Everyone. From Adamarishan. And even the characters that may appear, personalities that may not be appear positive ones also have this element. And that's how they live on forever. So there was an Avram that actually lived on earth. But above all, there's Avram in each one of us. So besides him being our forefather, meaning our patriarch, that we have his genes, we also have right now beating in our soul chesed. The chesed of your Nisham is the Avram within you. So we invoke the three pillars of Teda, Veda, Gmilis, Chasadim, which is Chesed, Gvure, Teferes. Teda is Teferes. Aveda, Tefillah, is Yitzchak. Teda, Teferes, is uh, Yaakov. And Gmilis, Chasadim, Chesed, is Avram. When we say in the Tefillah, say it with the Pirush, Emilis, Kavana, that's the purpose. We're invoking their schus, but we're also invoking their strength to, in a sense, generate Chesed from within us. Gvure, Teferes. Once you understand that, then every time you daven, it should be with a different kavana. Because once you're thinking, ah, where's my chesed holding? Where's my avram avinu being? Am I being machnus erech enough? I'm being kind, generous. So then, as many times as you say it, you're not repeating. It's like when you say Shema Yisrael again and again, and you focus on echad. Every time echad has different meanings. The same words, but different meanings once it has that personal application. Because you change. Your chesed today may be different than it is tomorrow. And same thing with Gvura, and same thing with Teferis. That's the short answer. So, this year's sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest concluded, delayed due to the pandemic, right before Rosh Hashanah. We announced the winners, and now every week we're going through from the, from the, from the number one essay or creative submission. So we're now the student winners, which is like the fourth place winners. Student winners, exclusively students, got a specific prize as students. And here again, 
we have two Hebrew ones, one for men and women, and one English one, and we have the fourth place creative. That's not for students, that's just the fourth place. So here they are. The first, the essay English $500 student winner was Lily Richmond, age 24, student at Machon Alta Seminary, originates from Twinsburg, Ohio. Seeing the future. I enjoyed reading this essay tremendously, putting things into context of instant gratification, how we are get caught up the minutia of the moment, and then how Chassidus helps us look at the bigger picture, the panorama, and that in turn informs the details. That's essentially it. And to read this essay, go to chassidusapply.com and you'll see right on the homepage, essays, you'll see the order, you can read this essay and all the others. The, the fourth the student, male student essay contest in Hebrew was called OCD, excellent essay really thorough, looking at OCD from the perspective of medical and psychological perspectives and uh, attitudes and interventions today, and comparing it to Torah approach. I think there's a major contribution in this topic, OCD, by Menachem Mendel Yeshayahu, Kiryat Shmuel, Haifa, Haifa, Israel. The Hebrew essays can be seen at diralo.org, D-I-R-A-L-O where you have all the Hebrew essay submissions there. The student essay contest for women, and these were uh, $500 prizes as well, is, was named Shini Atzmi Afshari. Is it possible, is fundamental core essential change possible? By Mushka Tabiv, Kfar Chabad Israel. And touches upon one of the biggest questions. Can you really change? Or do you only change the superficial? And you fundamentally will always remain the same person. Using Tanya's structure of the ten koiches, faculties, which is inherent to us, the three garments, which is our forms of expression, she develops it into a very powerful way of answering the question of how we actually, how our actions can actually change our, 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 our very beings. And finally, the fourth, price, fourth place winner, the creative track, uniting force, the power of giving, a handwoven tapestry, expressing that theme by Ruth Bell, age 64, Shlucha artist, Jewish Heritage Center coordinator and leads, leads UK, United Kingdom. And uh, check that out. Again, it's at chsidasupply.com, the actual image of the tapestry. I smile because it's so beautiful to see chsidas being applied in so many interesting ways not just in essay and words, but also through music and art and poetry and uh, tapestry and sculpture and scripts. And I, you know, I think if we keep doing this, I mean, we really are bringing, using all the mediums out there to express chassidus. Isn't that ultimately mola oriz deyas Hashem k'mayim le'yom So this has been chassidus applied, my life chassidus applied, episode 330. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Be well and be blessed. And uh, see you next week again. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.